Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Arizona Boomer Radio brings you Straight Down the Middle, Arizona's only Internet golf show. Straight Down the Middle is produced by the Boomer and the Baby Incorporated in partnership with GolfMix.com. GolfMix is your place to read course reviews written by recreational golfers just like you. Learn about the course you're going to play. Check out Golf Mix before your next round. Now it's time to hit it straight down the middle. Four! Straight down the middle. It went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook just a wee, wee bit. That's when McCaddy lost sight of it. That little white pellet has never been found to this day. But it went straight down the middle, like they say. Whacked down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway. And it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, flying away. And welcome to Straight Down the Middle, the only Internet golf show in Arizona that we know about that is strictly an Internet golf show. And we don't do much else other than talk about golf. Every now and then we'll sneak in some uh, other sports because one of the people that's with us, of course, is Mr. John Bloom, who is a sportscaster here in the area, so uh, we might sneak something in. We may even get some... uh, uh, some March Madness, and I understand Mr. Bloom has a bit of a dilemma uh, coming up this afternoon because a couple of his teams are playing, and I don't know what he's going to do about it. And I know he's on the line along with Kirk Getzinger. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you today, Pete? I'm good. Uh, how are you hey, doing, there, Mr. Bloom? Are you uh, are you budding nails today or what? No, not yet. I mean, my nails will be gone tonight. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and for those uh, joining us, the illusion that Pete makes is uh, I'm kind of a weirdo when it comes to college sports because uh, I have two teams. You know, most people are just allegiant to uh, their uh, their alma mater. Mine, of course, is Syracuse, and they're playing uh, the late game tonight in San Jose, California, right in my backyard where I grew up. Uh, however, the team I grew up rooting for and going to all the games for, my parents' alma mater, California, plays the uh, game previous to Syracuse. So they're playing back-to-back in the same venue, and I'm a little torn because I'm not there. However, it's a really busy week here in Phoenix for, for me and my family, so it just didn't make sense to to uh, make the flight out there and, and catch something that has never happened in my lifetime, may never happen again in my lifetime. But I will tell you this. I got my Golden Bear shirt on now. I got my orange shirt that will be ready to switch into as soon as the Cal game's over. And the real conflict will be if both teams win and then they actually have to play each other on Saturday right. in the say in the, well, what they call the third round now uh, because they've changed up all the, the round numbers. I, I still consider it the second round. And, 
and a chance to get to the Sweet 16. Well, that was going to be my question, Jim. Both win today. Which shirt are you wearing on Saturday? Boy, that's going to be tough. I mean, I think what I'll probably do, Kirk, is is I'll wear uh, you know shorts from one and a shirt from the other, or a hat from one and a shirt, but something like that. Because you know, really, I, people have asked me who you're going to root for, and I feel like if they both get there, then I'm a, I'm in a win-win because I am guaranteed that one of the teams I've I've spent so much of my life cheering for is going to be in the Sweet 16. So that's how I look at it. Uh, the good thing is, you know. They're not playing each other in the first round. That would mean that one of them was all, uh, was going to have to go home after one game. Now that still could happen, but we'll see. Uh, and in the meantime, you talk about March Madness. Uh, look around at the golf courses around us, fellas, because it's March Madness here. Kirk, I know you have an up-close uh, view, and you've had some interesting uh, people and celebrities coming by uh, TPC this week. Uh, maybe you could fill the folks in about that. Yeah, I, I, I really did, John. When you know, when I get there every morning you get a you get a T sheet and of course you see the, the list of players that are there and so uh so uh you you I walk up uh, Monday morning and uh first name I see is uh Al Michaels and uh he was he was there uh with some uh, some gentlemen I believe from NBC as well and so I had the chance to to shake hands with him at the first tee and he was very very nice and cordial and warm and looking yeah, and 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 uh, pretty focused on his round of golf as well. I will tell you, and he took a took a, took a pretty nice cut at it on the first tee, knocked it straight down the middle, and uh, I don't know how his match ended up for the day with the fellows he was with, but that was that was a treat. And uh, then looking a little later down the tee sheet that day, uh, there was a gentleman named, gentleman named Newt Gingrich on the tee sheet, uh, and I didn't get to see him that day, but as it turned out, I was there on Tuesday, and sure enough, when I walk in at 8.30, the name Newt Gingrich was on the tee sheet again, and so I got a chance to uh, say good morning to Mr. and Mrs. Gingrich and uh, sent them on their way to enjoy a round of golf, and in fact, he had an, in- had an interesting comment when I chatted with him at, just for a moment at the first tee. I asked him if he got a chance to play very much, and he said, not not really, and uh he had, you know, like I say, he had played on Monday, and he said, you know, this this really isn't a resort golf course, is it? And I, and I told him, no. I said, it's a, this course is a pretty good challenge. Uh, it 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 it's gonna it's gonna test your game, no no doubt about that. So he he had really enjoyed it, uh, enjoyed spending both the days there, and like you say, that that's what happens out here at this time of year where. The golf courses are full. People are coming here from all over the world, and uh, those are the kind. Of, those are the kind of things that can happen. And full disclosure, Pete. Uh, you know, I gave you my allegiances. Uh, Kirk is a, a true blue. He's a, a Michigan Wolverine. They're in action today too, so I know you're going to have uh, an eye on on their first round game. What we don't know is, Pete, where does your allegiance lie? I'm going to break out into a wild course of the victors if I, if we're not careful here. <laughs> Two part comedy. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm a Michigan I'm a Michigan uh, uh, faithful. I I did not go to Michigan. However, I went to a, a, a business school in that area uh, back in the day, and I worked uh, at the stadium at the big house uh, every Saturday. They had a home game. We were when I was working for a bank. We were volunteers, and we would help people to their seats and put the flags up and down. And we got to be part of the uh, 101,001 people uh, that were in the stadiums uh, cheering for the Blues. So uh, I now have a son-in-law that is a, a University of Michigan Law School graduate, and believe me when I tell you, uh, it's pretty much uh, 
a blue blood here <laughs> when, when they're going when they're when they're playing. So uh, uh, we always we always make make sure we have good uh, good tabs on the on the Wolverines. You know, I lived and died with their football. I still do, Pete, with their football team for for so yeah. many years. And and uh, you know, I mean, I I went there. I I went there. I went to undergraduate there in the seventies and. Uh, uh, lived through the uh, end of the Woody versus Bo era, which was an incredible football area and the era, and the basketball program was was quite strong in those days as well. Uh, they went to the national championship game in '76, losing to Indiana. But um, you know, their basketball program has obviously had its chronicled ups and downs over the last uh, the last uh, couple of decades, and it looks like they're on the on the path back. It looks like uh, Coach Beeline has got things moving in the right direction, and. I'm glad to, I'm glad to see that because it 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 had a good basketball feel to it when when I was there and I you know I can remember even back before then the years of uh, Campy Russell and Kazzy Russell so I'm starting to starting to date myself a little bit but uh, um, they, they have a they have a good building and a good place to play and I hope that I hope they keep building on that. Well, uh, speaking of, you mentioned a name that uh, I had a, a, a very short brush with, with Cassie Russell. There was a there was a men's baseball league in Ann Arbor, and Cassie Russell played in that league, as did I. And uh, I'm a little five foot eight kind of a guy, and Cassie Russell's a six foot whatever huge he is, and he was a pitcher, and. Uh, he would take a stride. First of all, his hands were so large, I don't know how he could even, it would be like me trying to throw a pee. Uh, and he would take his stride, and by the time he would release the ball, I swear he was about six feet in front of me. And I got myself into the box, and I went all the way to the back, all the way to the back corner behind me over my uh, over my right shoulder, and I just looked at it and put the bat on my shoulder and said, geez, I want to watch this. And I <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't swing. I don't think I even took the bat off my shoulder. And I just went and I sat down on the bench because he got three strikes in there. And I said, hey, that was really cool. <laughs> I said, I enjoyed that. <laughs> you, you know, Peter, when you think back to those years, and it really is a, a testimony to how the tournament has, has changed. I mean, a couple of years before I went to Michigan, I think it was only maybe a 24 or 32 team field, and Michigan was playing Notre Dame in one of the early games, and and, and Campy Russell was playing for Michigan at that time, and uh, Adrian Dantley was playing for Notre Dame, and to, those two guys could just flat fill it up. I mean, you know, it was just back and forth, but there was no national coverage of every game. There was no four cable networks. There was no you know 22 hours of television today and, and tomorrow of of games. I mean, we were. I remember going to a friend's house and watching this game on a U8. Remember the UHF channels, right? Where that used to exist, a channel mm-hmm. 62 in Detroit, where you barely yeah. could get the reception, and we're there at eight o'clock at night watching a game from who knows where, um, and it was it was com- incredibly compelling basketball. I mean, it was just a, it was a phenomenal game, but it just shows how, you know, what the you know, but. You know, there we were, you know, just in those two local markets getting coverage of the game, and that was it. And now, obviously, it's probably become the, you know, when you talk about an event that spans over three weeks like it does, uh, you know, maybe the only sporting event in in the country that kind of gets that kind of across-the-board nationwide attention to it uh, that uh, versus anything else. And you know what's awesome about it, too, Kirk, is, is – uh, 
that, you know, through this whole process, those of us who are, are college basketball junkies, it's great. But when you get the rest of the world into it because they're filling out their brackets or they're doing whatever, they've got a school in it, uh, that's fantastic, too, and you get all kinds of different people into it. Uh, the other thing that I love about it is remember that CBS has been the network that's, that's had this for, for quite some time now, the NCAA tournament. CBS also has another event that starts three weeks from today. And one of the beautiful parts of coverage of the NCAA tournament is how many times we get to hear the piano and the keys being struck with that lovely, delicate music and the tradition unlike any other being uh, promoted, which is three weeks from today uh, we got the start of the Masters. So I always look at this time of year as being my favorite time of the year, and it's because of a number of different things. I love college basketball. I love spring training here in the Valley and the fact that my San Francisco Giants are in town for a month and a half. Uh, and I certainly love getting amped up for uh, for who's going to win the green jacket this year, and it's going to be an exciting one, and I know we'll spend time talking about that in the next coming weeks. But I always like to throw that in there because you know you're going to see a whole bunch of Jim Nance and Masters commercials over the next few weeks. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Jim Nance and his blazer and uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the soft tones. Hello, friends. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, we've got some golf to talk about today, and and I I know we're we're going to uh, let's wrap up a little bit of what happened out there at the Founders Cup. Uh, You guys were out there, had a big presence out there this uh, this last week, and uh, I know you got a lot of great interviews. I was uh, partial to hearing a couple of them. I saw some uh, some of them on your site. Uh, Of course, we know that Stacy Lewis won it. Came from uh, well back after she had been been put in a bit of a hole by the fact that her caddy stepped into a trap and was deemed to have been testing the sand, I guess it was. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. I understand that that, uh, that call was made by a viewer on television. Um, yeah. And uh, that, that, that's not the first time that's happened in the annals of uh, television golf, that's for sure. Uh, first of all, uh, what do you think of that, both of you? And number two, uh, do you think he was testing the sand? I'll, I'll start real quick, Kirk, and, and just say that uh, I think that uh, I, I don't like, I've never liked the fact that a viewer can call in and call somebody out. Uh, and, and in some cases, I would be a little bit less perturbed by it if it was a rule that, that really did affect the, the play of, of the game uh, and, and the score for the player. Uh, in this case, to me, it's another one of those silly rules. And uh, I think the golf gods agree because uh, look at what happened in the end. Stacey Lewis was able to rally, uh, come from four shots down. She's an amazing story and an even more amazing human being. Uh, and uh, it was really exciting to see her do that and, and be able to pull it off and take the weight of the world off of her caddy's shoulders. I know she, you know, one of the neat parts about her was she was ribbing him the whole way around after this all transpired. And for those who didn't see, Saturday at the end of the round three, uh, she was two shots back. And after the round, they decided that because this viewer called in and saw her caddy get into the bunker and kind of move his toe a little bit, uh, they decided that uh, they'd call in and say, you know, that's a two-shot penalty. You can't test the sand when you're inside a bunker. The caddy can't test it for the player, and the player can't test it. Uh, you know, that's a rule. I think it's lame. I, I don't like viewers, you know, being the ones to, to make the judgments on, on a round of golf. I believe that, you know, we stick by what golf's principles are, which is you call yourself out when you make a mistake or, or you, uh, you know, have a rules infraction, or, you know, the rules officials are out there for that too. 
so that, that's my take on it. But I do think it all played out the right way in the end, Kirk, because the right person won the tournament. She was absolutely fantastic all week long. And so was Ai Miyazato, for that matter. Uh, just didn't have enough down the stretch to, to hold off the new number one in the world, Stacey Lewis. Yeah, I, I, you know, John, I think you're right. I mean, first of all, congratulations to Stacey Lewis for playing some incredible golf last week. Uh, when you talk about 23 under on, 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 you know, on that golf course, that those are just numbers that are that are incredible. And what a class move, first of all, to take fifty thousand dollars of her prize winnings and donate it to the girls' golf program. I mean, that is, you you talk about stepping up and and you know you know you know putting your you know literally putting your money where your mouth is type thing. I mean that 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 is a phenomenal thing, and so hats off to her for that. In terms of the rules infraction on on Saturday, I, I am not a big fan either of the. Uh, viewer call-ins to talk about rules and fractions. And the, and, and the real harm that can come from something like that is that happened on the 16th hole, so there was a chance to get to her before she signed her card. If you sign your card and then that, I mean, if that happens on the 18th hole, for instance, and they can't get to her by the time she signs her card, she can be DQ'd for something that is really marginal at best, and I think it gets back to, again, it gets back to another one of these silly rules where you start looking at intent, and I mean, you know, if the caddy is tapping his toes or the player is tapping their toes in there a little bit, I mean, is is that going to be called testing the sand? It gets to, an, it really gets to an intent question that I, I think we need, the more we can get that kind of stuff out of the rules of golf. I mean, I just thought, you know, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, well, just think about, like, and I'm not singling him out, but just think about Keegan Bradley for a second. You know, the kind of the, the back-and-forth shuffle he does before, you know, he hits a lot of shots. I mean, if, if he did that in a bunker, and I don't know if he does, but if he did that, would that be considered testing the sand? I mean, you you start to get into these really – fine line distinctions that just that's the kind of stuff we need to get out of golf it doesn't need to be a game of rules it needs to be a game of performance well kirk uh, let me ask you let me ask you this anytime any player any place amateur or professional steps into a trap they squish their feet around to quote get a good stance and now isn't that testing the sand well, don't you, in, 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 inadvertently, aren't you testing the stand, and aren't you also building a stance? I mean, there's two rules right there that could be interpreted, I would think, by normal trap play as being broken in the uh, in the game of golf. Well, well, fairly taking a stance is not considered testing the sand. But then again, I mean, okay, so those are the rules. But you know, okay, what it gets to a very subjective interpretation of intent, and and so you really get, you, you know, you can get in some hair splitting situations. Look, if a person's in a, I mean, it's just one of those rules. I, I don't get it because if you're in a bunk, one of the things you've got to, one of the things you've got to do. And one of the things, certainly at that level, in determining how you're going to play the shot is feeling how deep is the sand. And, you know, as best as superintendents and golf course people do, to, and certainly for a, condition, for a tournament, they want to make the conditions as uniform as possible. There's no way under the sun that they can make every trap play exactly the same. So not to give the player an opportunity, and especially in today's day and age now, where and, and, and especially at a course like Wildfire that is heavily bunkered, not to give the player a chance to understand how he has to play, he or she has to play the shot. 
I mean, the, you know, when you go into a, a bunker where there's very little sand or you go into a Florida sand trap where the sand is as soft and squishy as possible, it's a totally different golf shot. Give the player the opportunity to make a judgment what the best way is to play the shot. And let's not worry about whether somebody's wiggling their, wiggling their toe in the sand trap, you know? Yeah, I mean, look at it this way, Kirk. You you allow players to get into the rough and look at their ball, take a look at the lie, and then take a few swings in the rough right next to the to the ball. Now, I understand the rough is not deemed a hazard as bunkers are supposed to be. I mean, they're not really anymore for the pros because a lot of times they'll aim to hit it in the in the bunker instead of the rough, uh, you know, almost the majority of the time because these guys are so good out of the sand. But yeah, it's just one of those rules that just you, you scratch your head, you don't understand it, uh, and then for it to be the caddy on top of it all. And, and Pete, I, I like your question because, yeah, when I take my stance in a bunker and I kind of just grind my feet in there so I can have a good, solid stance, that's how I test the bunker. I mean, to be perfectly honest, that's how I know how much sand is in there. So really, then anybody who does that, and I think it's pretty uniform across the tour that guys do that, they get their stance when they get in the sand that's testing the bunker more than that caddy did with just the tap of the toe. So it, it really is silly. There's so many silly rules in this game. And, and I'm like Kirk. I think, you know, to, to make this game more popular, it's not about, uh, you know, accentuating all these rules. It's about kind of hiding them if we can, simplifying the game and getting more people into it. Because if someone's not into golf and they're listening to this conversation right now, they're like, what? Are you kidding me? You can't just tap your toe? In the it's just stupid. Yeah, it is, and there there are so many other things too that uh, <clears throat> that are are allowed. Uh, as an example, uh, if if it's a case where you can't see how deep the sand is, even by by, by whatever means, uh, should you be allowed to put a tee down in the ground around your ball well, when it's in the rough, not out of bounds, but in the rough, to see whether or not that roof that root of the tree is up close to the surface. Should you just have to take your chance and break your wrist? I mean, that's that's going to an extreme. I realize, but is it isn't it equitable one to the other? I mean, does, does, isn't there it does, isn't there a uniformity that should be here uh, in these rules? Oh, I think there should, and, and I don't think it's that extreme. I mean, you just look at one of our friends and uh, co-founders of Golf Mates, Aaron Oberholzer, and how he hurt himself. The whole string of injuries started at the Byron Nelson when he took a swing of where he thought was you know, going to be a relatively uh, soft area, and it ended up being hard pan, and, and uh, that's where he broke his wrist for the first time. He didn't know about it initially, but, um, you know, had he been able to, to test that area, maybe maybe he changes the way he goes about uh, his swing on that play. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there isn't uh, a tremendous amount of consistency. I mean, listen, I'm not going to be here to, to start ripping the rules of golf. I mean, I, I love this game so much that, uh, you know, some of these negative rules you just suck up and you say it's part of the deal and you just move on and keep playing your game. But it's also uh, a good thing that, that I'm not playing competitively anymore because had I, or if I was, then I'd probably be you know, even more infuriated with, with some of the rules. Well, well, while we're talking about the game, I, I mentioned this uh, uh, in, in the uh, email I sent uh, to both of you with regard to some of the things we might discuss today, and I know this is something that Kirk has, uh, has has some thoughts on, and that is pace of play. I mean, the pace of play is every golf show, no matter where you listen to it, eventually will come to the discussion about pace of play, and how fast should you be able to play the game, how fast is uh, too fast, how slow is too slow. 
why don't we get into it based on that? And I want to kind of start with Kirk because uh, he works over there at the golf course, and he, I'm sure, you, Kirk, you have to deal with pace of play every day you're out there, don't you? Oh, we we do, Pete. It's a it's a number one focus over there at the at the TPC as it is at at most golf courses. And you know, you talk to any uh, head professional, any general manager, and it and it always is in their top couple of issues in terms of managing a golf course and it is um, not only a critical issue for the golf industry but it's uh, in terms of how they can manage their properties and how they can uh, be successful as a golf property but it's an it's a critical thing in terms of enjoyment of the game and so in it it remains that way and we, you know, we we take it very uh, seriously. I think we uh, we have a pretty good balanced approach to how how we handle it. But from my standpoint, to me, it really, uh, me as a golfer, I mean, it, here, here's my line in the sand on golf. Uh, on golf, if you can't get around a golf course in four hours playing your regular course, you're part of the problem. Okay. Now that might be it's a multifaceted problem, but it might be you. And it might be things with the course. It's it's how you approach the game in terms of pace. There's a lot of things that courses can do better in terms of pace of play. I just I just saw an email this morning that I got. There's an article that is in the in Golf World magazine uh, this week where they're talking about how courses are unnecessarily increasing the speed of their greens so that everybody can so people can put greens at a tour speed except the problem is when you get stimp readings up to 11 and 12 and 12 and a half the average amateur player can't put the greens i mean you're you're seeing people knock knock putts off the green all the time so it is it is a multifaceted thing and we can talk about it from many different directions there's things players need to do there's things courses need to do uh, if we ever get to the point in this country again, and I hope it happens very soon, where we start building a lot of new golf courses because there's millions of new people going into the game, course design is a critical element to it. But in this era now of everybody having a smartphone in their pocket, of instantaneous communication, of instantaneous everything, people's time is even more important than ever. And everybody who's in the golf industry, from players, owners, designers, professionals, needs to put it number one on their list that we're going to get people around a golf course in four hours. Because if we don't, and if golf becomes a five-and-a-half-hour exhibition, uh, people leave the game. That's, there's, just, there's just no question about that. It's just not the way you're going to keep people in the game. And uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of simple things, I think, that can be done. And I've seen it out there. Uh, years and years working over there and seeing thousands of people go around the golf course. It's not hard, but it needs to be, it needs to always be a focus. Well, there are certain golf courses, are there not? Uh, at least I think uh, that are renowned for their pace of play being absolute. I mean, pack a lunch. Uh, you know, not only do you need to get a snack at the turn, you need to get a snack at five, and you need to get a snack at. Uh, 13 as well because you're going to be out there forever uh and one of them uh that i've played is uh one of the the courses that everybody many many players say they want to play of course is, is tory pines in san diego i mean here's the problem as i see it uh some of these courses are so beautiful you want to take your camera and you want to turn sure. into a bird you want to turn into a bird watcher 
Uh, yeah, and 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 it happens, and that's what I was going to mention, Pete. Was that uh, you know it's it is interesting that some of the worst courses, pace of play wise, are the best courses in America, and uh, and the reason is is a couple things. You mentioned the the picturesque uh, part of it, and there's no question that is part of it. Uh, people taking pictures and stopping to enjoy the views. Even Pebble Beach is world for now for being an extremely slow place to play because of that reason. True North here locally, one of the most picturesque, beautiful golf course. They struggle with pace of play a lot of the time. Uh, you know, even though they have 36 holes up there, uh, it's one of those areas. And, and that's kind of difficult to to stop or change, I think. I mean, uh, Kirk, you talked about some of the, the ways that the courses go about doing it. But sometimes you just have to prepare people. And sometimes it's just as advertised. And it means that this is going to be an all-day excursion for you when you come play our golf course. It's just the way it is. You're going to love it. You're going to enjoy it. But don't expect to play in three and a half hours, which many of us love to do. I mean, I think the ultimate round of golf is, is yeah, four hours or less. I, I love playing in three hours. I love just whipping around and getting up to my golf ball and hitting it and moving on. But there's also days where I really love to look around me and to enjoy the uh, the great scenery. And, and that's one of the best parts of this game is, is you know, some of the places that we get to go. Uh, that, that people uh, on earth don't get to see if they don't play golf. And, and I tell a lot of people who never play golf that, too, that, you know, if you pick this game up, you're going to get to see things you would have never otherwise gotten to see and, and enjoy views that, that nobody else gets to enjoy. So, uh, And that does slow it down, unfortunately. So even though I'm a proponent of, of quick play and playing in four hours or less, I understand that sometimes, you know, there's an exception to that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, John, I mean, like, for instance, take, Take Pebble Beach. I mean, should I ever have the good fortune to, to to go play up there? Yeah, the smartphone's coming out of my pocket every once in a while too. There's no there's no question about that. And and look, we we face that issue at the you know you've always faced the issue at the higher end golf courses, whether it's a True North or a TPC or whatever, where people are paying you know two and two and two hundred fifty or three hundred dollars, whatever it is, at this time of year to play a course, and they say, well, holy jumping, if I if if uh, if I'm paying that much, doggone it, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna spend a little extra time out here. Uh, the only pr- the, the problem that comes in with that is on a typical day at this time of year when you have 180 people out there at the golf course, um, you know, unfortunately there's no HOV lane on golf courses. Uh, you know, the the you your pace of play is dictated by the slowest player on the course, and the four-hour player can't zip around the five-hour player and and move through. So. It's uh, it's a diff- it's a very difficult challenge at those kind those kind of courses. Uh, the the more how can I say the more everyday or, or regular type golf courses they struggle with pace of play as well, and it comes from uh, it comes from things about how what there's done in course setup as well as as well as players. Look from a player standpoint, if you're thinking your everyday course, if you're thinking four hours is where it needs to be, it's real simple. Look at where you are after an, after six holes, and if you're at an hour and twenty minutes, you're right there. Uh, if you're if you're in position waiting for people to hit on the par threes when you get there, you're 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 in position. You know what you're doing. I you know I I certainly know there are days when. Yeah, you're going to want to take the, the the camera out, but the perception of golf as a five or five and a half hour game is not a good one, and um, you know is one that in, in general the industry can do more to uh, more to dispel. That's for sure. 
Well, Kirk, let me ask you this. When I was learning this game way back in the day, uh, and I was playing with my dad, it was always the case of if if we're holding up play, we let somebody play through. Whatever happened to let them play through? Whatever happened to waving them up on the par three? I mean, for crying out loud, if there's a hole and a half open in front of me, I'm too slow. That's just the way it is. Now, if I'm not going to increase my speed of play because I don't have the capability to do so or I'm not a skilled enough player and it just takes me that long, uh, sure, pick it up, put it in your bag, whatever. But I shouldn't have to do that, but I should have the courtesy to let the foursome behind me or two groups behind me play through. And what does it hurt? Well, yeah, Pete, you know, you, you touch on a really good point. And first of all, like, like, like what John said, the key thing for a course to do is set the expectation at the beginning, okay? When people come to the first tee at the TPC, we tell them it's four hours and 15 minutes. That's our expectation in terms of pace of play. So a person knows if they're playing at that pace, everything is going to be fine in terms of, you know, even if the group in front of them is playing a half an hour faster, we're not going to go up to them and say, "Hey, you need to let a couple, you need to let a couple groups through." The and and that is a courtesy, Pete. That certainly on days where it's not that crowded on a golf course, you want to make sure that you know you're aware of that and you let people do it. Uh, and like, for instance, when I'm on the course of the TPC, if I can see that and I can see there's two holes open in front of somebody, hey, I'll speak to that group that's kind of holding up somebody before them and say, hey, why don't you let, if you don't mind, could you just let this group through? Uh, there's nobody, perhaps there's nobody behind that group, and so they're just impacting one group and everybody ends up with a better round. The difficulty from a course management standpoint becomes when it's a really crowded day and you have 15 groups in a row right behind that one group that's a hole or hole and a half out of position, and you can't let them through because then you then you almost compound the problem because then you'd have to you'd have to let everybody through and you just you just don't have a way to do that and so you have to work with the group that is the one that's holding up the train so to speak and do whatever you can with them to pull them along. Yeah, encourage ready golf. I mean, that, that that's one of the things in golf that we could do. If we didn't make the emphasis, first of all, forget about honors in golf. I mean, you know, I, I would love to see the USGA come out and say, for amateur play, disregard honors. Play ready golf. The first person to get to the tee, put it in the ground. If you get out there to your second shots and you're a couple of yards apart from each other, the first person to play, first person to get there, play adhering to the honors rule is something that is a serious, serious thing, a time coster on, on, on golf that really doesn't affect the enjoyment of the game at, at all. Um, but, yeah, being aware, like you say, Pete, being aware of where other people are in the course, these of you, it's, it's just a common courtesy thing. I, I agree, and it's just something that you, know, you, you can be aware of, and the courses can do a good job in making players aware of where they do stand in their, in their position on the course. What do you think about waving up on a par three? Um, I don't see that as re- generally that's not a real problem in terms of the the, the setup of, of a course. Um, it, it it can it, can, it depending on how your par threes are set up, it can create it can create delay unto itself um, depending on where people are at. 
the the issue I see on the par threes a lot is how the courses set them up. And here's an example, and I'm not and I'm not picking on any one of these courses. I'm just using examples because I spend a lot of my golfing hours there. At the TPC, the seventh hole is really a difficult par three. From the blue tees, it plays about 190 yards, and it's a good test, and it's a tough green to it's a, it's a tough green to hit, and it's well bunkered. On difficult par threes, don't tuck the pins. Okay, we don't need the pins where the pros do on Sunday at the Phoenix Open, sitting three three yards from the right edge and two yards from the back edge. Keep the pins in accessible positions because, like you say, Pete, that's where your backups occur generally on a golf course is on the par threes. So if, if you're having a regular problem, hitting up is probably going to solve that. But if your par threes are set up in a way that people can get through them in 10 minutes, which is about the length of time it should take to play a par three, um, your bet, you, the, group in, the, the group that's up on the green can be putting out by the time the group behind them gets there. If there's a serious backup on the tee, yeah, then you probably do need to start having a system where, where you wave people up. Um, the, the other thing I see is, is that too many par threes are too long. Okay? I, as I mentioned to you, I, I, I play in the golf league over at Dobson Ranch. The 12th hole there is, can play anywhere from 200 yards to 110 yards. A couple of weeks ago, we played it as a 200-yard hole, and there was a two-group backup on the tee. A couple, the, the, a couple of weeks before that, we had the tee moved all the way forward, played it as a 115-yard hole to a tucked pin that was just a wedge shot over a bunker, and there was no backup on the tee. So, had, so the golf course adds 20 minutes to the round of golf simply by how, the, how that one hole is set up. That's not how it should be, and that's where I, I am a big proponent of shorter and mid, short to mid iron par threes. I, I think long iron and three wood par threes uh, are generally not a good thing on a golf course, and they are definitely a killer in, in terms of pace of play. I've, I've seen that you know for many many years of the TPC. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to touch uh, on a couple things that Kirk mentioned. Uh, I agree with him as, as far as, you know, the distances being a factor, and, and that goes back to just making sure that the players are playing the right team for them most places because if they are, then, uh, you know, they they shouldn't run into having an extraordinarily long uh, hole. I think the other thing uh, from a standpoint that, that Kirk talked about with Reddy Golf, you know, for those who don't know, the, the, the format of, of, you know, waiting for honors, uh, that that's – that's fine, and, and, you know, the person who's furthest away goes first. I understand how that works, but I will say this. The thing that probably slows rounds down more than anything is when people aren't ready, and then they wait until it's their turn, and when it's their turn, that's when they start going through getting ready. And, and what I mean by getting ready is evaluating the shot, picking the club, uh, looking at the lie, uh, if you're on the green, reading the pot, all that stuff. Those are the things you can be doing while other people are hitting, and you should be doing while other people are hitting. And when I play with golfers that don't, you know, there's there's different times. Like, for instance, I haven't played golf in a long time, but this Sunday I'm going out with uh, a bunch of my friends who are coming in from all over the, the country for spring training this weekend, uh, a bunch of high school buddies. But we're going to play golf, and half of them don't play golf. They're just coming because it's what you do when you come to spring training. They're going to play around the golf. Uh, so I have a feeling we're going to be chit-chatting. It's a Sunday morning. Maybe the round will be a little slow, and we'll be fine with it. 
uh, I won't get on anybody's case for, for not being ready in, in that circumstance. But there are other ones where, you know, you're playing, you want to get the, the round in, and, uh, and part of speeding that up, and my father-in-law is as guilty as anybody of this, is just being ready when it's your turn, whether that means you're playing ready golf and you're first up to hit, or whether that means you're playing honors golf and you know you're, you're second or third, just be ready so that when it is your turn, you're going to take a few seconds to go through your pre-shot routine and hit the ball. And the other thing that uh, that I touch on, too, uh, with regards to calling people up on a par three is uh, there's a time and a place for that. If, uh, if you're playing uh, in a twosome and you're behind a foursome that's slow and there's a hole or two uh, in front of that foursome and you know they're not waiting on a group in front of them, then absolutely I think it's appropriate to uh, drive up to the green even and say, hey, would you guys mind if we play through? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And if anybody ever does that to me, it never ruffles my feathers. In fact, I actually dislike playing through more than I do letting people play through because when you play through, you, you, no matter how much you tell yourself to slow down and take your time, inevitably you're going to rush yourself, right, guys? I mean, that's just what we do. We want to hurry up, get, get out of the way because uh, these people were nice enough to let us go, and then we end up probably losing a shot or two in, in that uh, transition. So uh, more often than not, that, that always frustrates me a little bit. And, and I do also have a pet peeve of when, groups are, are running up my back and, and there's nowhere I can go. So in that circumstance, if you are playing fast and the group in front of you is slow, but the group in front of them is slow too, you got to just find a way to, to kind of tap the brake a little bit because there's really nothing you can do in that circumstance. Yeah. And well, John, uh, the, the other thing I, I wanted to mention about that playing through that you mentioned, uh, John, is that it complicates the matters. Not only were they nice enough to say, go ahead, play through, please, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, all of us, and then they'll say to you, "Take your time. Don't right. rush." <laughs> Kirk, I wanted to, I wanted to mention uh, when, you, when you're talking about mid irons on par threes. I don't know of a mid iron shot, or even that many short iron shots that aren't as much of a test as trying to hit, make a long iron uh, hit the green. Uh, what are the statistics about people hitting greens? Uh, there, there, there's a reason why these hole in one contests. Uh, are are set up the way they are because they know that a huge percentage of people don't even hit the green. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean you know, Pete, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, for instance, like when I see hole-in-one contests set up, you know, for outings or whatever, the TPC, a lot of times when you're going for big prizes like, you know, cars or 10000 in cash or something like that, they have a requirement generally that the hole has to be over a certain right. number of yards, usually exactly. like 175 or something like that. So, I mean... You know the average player. The average player. The odds of a hole in one are like twelve thousand to one. I, I still have a few thousand more to go, obviously, to get my first because I haven't had one yet. But anyways, um, the, the odds are the, the, the odds are tremendous. Um, so I think uh, you, you know, in terms of hitting the green, whether the percentages fall off that much for the average player at you know say one seventy five and over versus under under one seventy five, I really really have never seen any any numbers on that. But I just think. I think a par three hole, to me, it gets back to what what I'd like to see in a golf course. The it, a part, think about the greatest par three holes in the world. Some of them, number seven at Pebble Beach, it's 105 yards. Okay, number 17 at at, uh, at Sawgrass, it's 135 yards from the back tees. 
even at even at Augusta, number number, number 12, twelve, yeah, yeah, plays maybe what one hundred and sixty five from the from the tournament tees, and Top. the number tees is probably one hundred and thirty or something like that. You don't need a two hundred yard par three to make it a great hole, and I really think it gets back to what golf is. Golf is a game of precision, okay, and. You, to a great par three hole can be 130 to 160 yards, but make it a shot where you've got a lot of par threes. Obviously, have water involved because that that increases the challenge. It has multiple pin locations where you can do things with bunkers or swales or whatever you know design elements you can build in. But to me, a good short to medium length par three that provides a, a, a good challenge in terms of precision is is far better than a 215-yard par three where you're trying to knock a hybrid or a five-wood or a three-wood if you're into the wind or whatever it is uh, into the green. And for most people, it ends up playing like a par four. Give, give the player a chance to make an excellent shot uh, into into a tight target. That That, to me, defines a great par three. Well, I'll tell you right now, I can I know for a fact that the three of us were involved in an event where we watched people hitting it to a par three, the number 16, of course, at TPC, when you had your golf mix day out there, and Aaron Overholzer was out there hitting golf balls. And the fact of the matter is, how many people missed that green? You know, I don't know. A, and, and that was playing, what, 110 yards? We had the hole set at 105 yards from where we were hitting. And I, I was, you know, as as is my my my, uh, my pension in life. And the numbers were my thing for that day, right? We had a hundred, almost 110 people go through there, and on a 110 yard shot, one out of three hit the green, one out of three, and and into a, a pin that was in the front and had plenty pretty sizable green, green. pretty sizable green, pretty easy shot to hit, and that gets back to what we were talking about on that hole. Uh, you know, if you miss the green, you're definitely looking at four or worse because of how it's bunkered and the slopes, and not many people are making three from off of that green. So, you know, you don't need a 180-yard shot to be a, to be a great challenge. Just there, everybody basically with a wedge in their hand and a good, you know, a good range of golfers there that day, one and three hit the green. Well, not only yeah, a little bit, but... little other factors there too. You know, to, to, to get the back of, of some of the folks who are playing, in case any of them happen to be listening, uh, you know, the, the stands were up, and we were filming, uh, we were broadcasting. There were a lot of other, and they had a pro there next to them. So there, there were a lot of other factors, and and you know this as well as I do, guys. That, that it's such a mental sport that it, even though you might have this chip shot in front of you, when you start letting your brain kind of. Uh, you know, and take in some of the other things, the outside factors. Uh, sometimes it doesn't matter how good of a golfer you are. So I think uh, I think that could have uh, gone into those statistics. However, I will agree wholeheartedly with you guys that uh, a par three can be just as good at 105 yards as, it, as and sometimes a lot better than it would be at 190 to 210. And you, when you make, and when you add into the mix uh, too, John, uh, that Aaron. That was there, and he took 110 shots because he took a shot for every player, uh, every time a player came through, rather. Uh, so I guess that would be 110 shots for Aaron. Yeah, about 40 or 30 something. Yeah, if yeah, because they were coming in groups, and uh, he here we have a PGA pro who that does that various things don't affect. 
and he missed the green on several occasions himself. So I mean, it's this this thing about uh, the and my only point in saying that is this thing about having to be a long par three over water, carrying three traps with a pin tucked right front of the middle uh, in, in the in the front of the green rather. Um, it's a myth. It's just a myth. That's not what makes the golf hole. No, I, I I totally I totally agree, Pete. I think, and it's one of those ways also that, look on a, on a par three, your, your par threes are generally look at look at the tour players. Okay, where where do they go under par in their rounds? They go under par on the par fives. It's not the yeah. you know the best players of the year will probably play the par threes in even you know in even par to maybe slightly under. I mean, if you if if a tour player played his season and averaged 2.9 on the par threes, he's probably in the top 10 for, for the year. I mean, so, and granted, they're playing the most difficult holes in the world. So if it's that way for the best players in the world, what is it for the amateur players? It's probably, if you ever went through and charted your rounds, where do you end up the most over par on the threes, fours, or fives over the course of the year? It's probably the threes. And a lot of that is due to um, just the, the, the difficulty of the hole in making par vis-a-vis a par four or par five, where if one shot, if, if your drive on the par four isn't perfect, you can recover with the second shot in the same way for, for a par five and, and, and make a par. There's no recovery chance basically on a par three. If you miss the green, uh, you know, 90% of the time, probably most people are not are, are not making par. So, Create the hole to give the player a chance to to have the success on on that hole. Is it safe to say that in, in summing up this uh, kind of slow play uh, discussion here today, I know we can come back to this at any time and and have more aspects of it. But is it safe to say, in in your fellow's opinion, that one of the best things you could do to help avoid slow play is ready golf? Is that one of the keys? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, like I talked about before, ready golf is uh, has a couple different meanings. It means that you're not waiting for uh, order and, and the customary honors system, uh, and you're just going up. So when you're ready, uh, you know, for instance, if I'm driving the cart that's in front uh, and I park and I got my driver out for the next hole, even though I may have double bogeyed and I had a buddy who made a par, as long as they're cool with it and you set it out before you start playing that uh, we're not doing honors today, Get up there and hit the ball. You know, don't wait. Some guys, they just take their time getting out of the cart. Or they're on their phone or they're writing something down on their scorecard or they're doing something. Uh, when that's the case, you know, I think the key is that everybody else just gets up and goes, even if that guy just made an eagle. You know, get up there, steal his tee box and hit the ball and move on. Uh, I think that's a big part. And then the other part I mentioned before, which is just making sure you're ready to go uh, and not waiting uh, and, until the, the guy before you hit and then start your routine, meaning size up the shot and figure out what you're going to do. Make your plan and then be ready and, and hit the ball. That, you would be shocked at how fast that could speed up some golfers out there. Well, yeah, you know, there was, a, there was a, a case not that long ago, uh, a few years back, where Deborah, my wife, took a, a golf course from a friend of hers who was an avid golfer, and she taught a course at a community college. Uh, it was golf etiquette for women so they could learn golf etiquette. Uh, And there were a couple of things that she said, and it had to do directly with speed of play. Number one, when you're done with the hole, when you're done playing the hole, put the flag back in the cup, and as she said, walk briskly off the green. 
And then the next thing she said is, mark your score at the tee box of the next hole. Don't sit there and start haggling over the scores and who had what and counting your beads when you're standing next to the pin. And go, 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 to, go, to the next, go to the next tee box and read your abacus to figure out how many shots you had. Um, yeah, it, it really and, is. It, it's a game of inches, Pete. You know, I mean, it, it's it's you know the way we explain it a lot of times in the TPC is just think about this: if you if you slow down to just a mere two minutes on a hole, well, you multiply that by eighteen, and all of a sudden that's thirty six extra minutes in your round, and you 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 start approaching a a, a five hour round. Um, what one of the other things that I, I can throw into that mix also is when when you're on the green putting. And you've got the typical thirty or thirty-five foot foot putt. You know how many times do we watch people line it up from four sides, try to pick four intermediate points to roll the putt over, and then ultimately decide to go up and hit the putt? I mean, if you are offline two degrees on a thirty-five foot putt, just you can do the math and do the geometry. You miss the putt. So you know the 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 chances a person has of making long putts are so small, and people will stand over them forever. And that is another place that I, I really watch, and you see where people lose time on um, it, it's 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 on long uh, on long putts on the green. Well, not only that, but uh, you know the, the chance of making that putt the first place is the old slim and none that slims on a horse leaving Dodge, and uh, and, and number and number two is your first look is your best look. Uh, you know, you know, just take your look and, and, and go with what you look at because the more you change it, the more indecisive you're going to be, the more time it's going to take. Your first look is your best look and hit it and get done with it and, be, and move on. We're getting ready to wrap this thing up. Really. This has been a great show, a, a great discussion uh, today. But before we go, I'd like to have uh, both of your opinions on this. Uh, we we started out with the Founders Cup. Let's end with the Founders Cup. It was an, a, a very successful event by all standards, as near as I could tell. And I think everybody was happy. They, they had nice crowds, I think. Uh, certainly had beautiful weather. The players enjoyed the golf course and everything. Um, what is the future of the Founders Cup? I saw a story uh, in the local newspaper that there's still some questions as to whether or not there's ever going to be a long-term relationship for the Founders Cup there and where it's going to be, and hopefully it'll still be in in the Phoenix area. Uh, what do you folks, uh, what do you fellas think about that, and what do you think the future of the Founders Cup here uh, is here in Phoenix? Well, I can just say from you know what I hope for, which is that uh, it isn't going anywhere, uh, because I do think this town, as we talked about last week, definitely can support uh, this event. And I like the event, too. I do like the sentiment of it. I like the fact that it mixes both uh, where the game started along with where the game's going, with, with how they donate so much money to the Girls Golf Foundation. And, and uh, selfishly, I think that's tremendous, having two little girls that I hope to grow up and play this game So uh, and be a part of, of the LPGA USGA Girls Golf uh, Program. So for those reasons, I'm hopeful. However, uh, I think when you want to be realistic about it, uh, you have to take into consideration what's going on uh, across the, the economic landscape of this country and certainly focusing in on the LPGA. They've lost sponsors. Uh, they've they've lost tournaments over the last few years. It's understandable that, that sometimes, you know, these companies that put out the big bucks to, to put their name on these things don't get the return that they were hoping for. Now, I hope that uh, R.R. Donnelly is getting that return, and I do agree with you, Pete. I think they did have nice crowds out there, and they uh, they did – 
uh, by far surpassed what they did a year ago. Now, part of that's the weather was fantastic in comparison, and uh, you know we had a great pairing in the in the final round, and, and certainly on Saturday some great drama too. Uh, so there's there's a whole bunch of factors. I can't sit here and say I know what's going to happen to the Founders Cup. I can just tell you I'm hopeful that it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, you know, I would I would echo that, John. I, I first of all, I think th- this town certainly uh, can can support an event, but there's so much that goes into it. And like you said, right at the top is having that committed t- title sponsor. That's what that's what drives professional events and and keeping a keeping an event in place having that sponsor is is obviously crucial and and hopefully uh everything does work out for the R. Donnelly people so that they can continue and make a long-term commitment to to this event. I think another thing that's crucial is is keeping the keeping it at one venue and hopefully you know I think the Wildfire venue sets up very well for for this event. Um it's a golf course that lends itself to scoring. It's in a good location in town to bring to bring people out. And uh and hope and you know what happened at the sixteenth hole this week is one of those building blocks where a tournament can kind of uh set its message where look you like you say you had the incredible turnaround of a rules infraction on Saturday and then the tournament being decided the following day on the same hole when Aimeazato hits a second shot that falls into the desert and leads to a double bogey, a situation that all of us as amateurs can relate to in terms of desert golf. And that's that's kind of one of the def- definitions of desert golf is uh, the peril awaits you. And so th- there's some building blocks I can see that they have there to, to build upon. And certainly having the star power and the rivalry of, of a Stacey Lewis versus an Aimeazato going down the stretch Every sport thrives on star power and rivalries, and so when you see something like that happen again, it, it, it gives you another another building block. I mean, I would, I, I, you know, in terms of the LPGA in general, I would love nothing more, and it's something perhaps they've looked at, and, and I hope it comes into place someday where they have the Solheim Cup, where you can have Americans competing against Europeans, but to build that rivalry and to build that name recognition. To have an American players versus Asian players competition, I think would go a long way to getting that brand recognition and that name recognition out there that the that that tour uh, really needs to cultivate and develop. So, I, I except hope for the fact that we get our butts whooped, Kirk. I mean, you got to let us have the rest of the world if we have to go up against Asia right now on the LPGA. Let's be honest. Uh, I got. I got to tell you. Uh, we'll, I don't know, John. We'll see. Maybe. I think it'd be pretty competitive. I think. I think it would be one of those things that our players would rise up for. I think. Uh, I, I think they would take on the challenge. And I think. And, and again, we know how successful the on the men's side the Riders Cup and now the you know, the Presidents Cup has been in fostering that kind of stuff. I mean, look at. Uh, take a guy like Ian Poulter, for instance. Okay, you know we don't see we see some of him over here, but not a lot. But where did he really make his name in golf? In the Ryder Cup, yeah. and you can have players like that that just kind of evolve out of out of that kind of a format. And so, yeah, my hope would be that you know we could uh, we could be waving the red, white, and blue at the end of the day. Absolutely, I'd love to see that happen. I think it would be. I think the LPGA would benefit tremendously from it. Well, guys, I tell you, we're right down here to the uh, to the short rows, as they as they say in the farmland. So uh, I guess we're going to have to wrap this up. This has been a, a a very interesting show and a lot of fun to do. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, uh, another one uh, just like it in the not too distant future. So uh, we'll look forward to being back again 
uh, being back again with more Straight Down the Middle next week. I want to thank you for being with me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Pete. Uh, I'll give a heads up to your listeners. They'll be the first ones to know this. With the Masters starting three weeks from today, we are going to kick off our Masters contest today, which means anybody who writes a review on golfmix.com from today, uh, over the next three weeks, you're going to qualify for the contest. You're going to get uh, to have a player or a couple players uh, in the field at Augusta that you're going to be rooting for, and if they come in uh, in the money, then you're going to end up with some great gear from Augusta Nationals. I'll be there again working for CBS Sports. And for those who know, can't get Masters gear if you're not on the grounds at Augusta National or if you don't write a review on golfmix.com. Well, I want to uh, also uh, remind folks to uh, take a look at golfmix.com and take a look at the uh, the really great interviews that you had uh, with the some of the principals there. I know you had a uh, an interview with uh, uh, with I and also with Stacy, and uh, you're be, to be commended for those. Plus the others that you got with the commissioner of the LPGA and uh, some real insights there. Uh, some real insights there into uh, into the players and the operation of the LPGA and what they're looking for in the future, too. So everybody go to golfmix.com so they can make sure that they uh, avail yourself of that those great interviews that John did. So uh, with that, we're going to have to close it down. I'm getting in my ear the signal that we're about out of time, so we'll be talking to you again next week, everybody. And uh, John and Kirk, thanks again for joining me, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank Take you. It easy. Pleasure. Take care. Arizona Boomer Radio brings you straight down the middle, Arizona's only Internet golf show. Straight Down the Middle is produced by the Boomer and the Baby Incorporated in partnership with GolfMix.com. GolfMix is your place to read course reviews written by recreational golfers just like you. Learn about the course you're going to play. Check out GolfMix before your next round. Now it's time to hit it straight down the middle. Four. Just a wee, wee bit And that's when my caddy lost sight of it That little white pellet has never been found to this day But it went straight down the middle Like they say